welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. When people speak of the Amish, they're using a very simple term that covers over rather than reveals. It's a term that applies to 40 affiliations or subgroups, each with a distinctive way of life, from dress and carriages to technological and cultural choices. And within those 40 affiliations are 2,600 church districts with different religious and social practices. Yet amidst this diversity, writes my guest Donald Craybill, many common traits, beliefs, and rituals still make it possible to talk about the Amish as one social group. Donald Craybill is Distinguished College Professor at Elizabethtown College, where he is also Senior Fellow of the Young Center for Anabaptist and Pietist Studies. He has written numerous books about the Amish and their related brethren. The latest is What the Amish Teach Us, Plain Living in a Busy World, just published by the Johns Hopkins University Press. Donald Craybill, welcome to Historically Thinking. I'm delighted to be with you. So first things uh, first, um, I know when an American is in England and says they study English history, the English want to know why should an American be interested in English history? Um, Northerners who are interested in Southern history are asked by Southerners, why are you interested in Southern history? So I guess it's probably an occupational hazard as a sociologist who studies the, the Amish and who wears a chin strap beard now. Uh, and without a mustache, maybe people ask, are you Amish? Uh, uh, why are you interested in the Amish? Well, I got interested in the Amish uh, back in 1984, 85. Um, I uh, grew up in Lancaster County and began speak, uh, teaching at Elizabethtown College in 1971 in western Lancaster County. Uh, I grew up on a farm in a Mennonite farm, with a Mennonite farm family, and so I knew a little bit about the Amish at a distance, but didn't have any neighbors. But um, in 1984 and 85, the uh, Hollywood Paramount film Witness was being filmed in Lancaster County, and um, that sort of stirred my interest. Uh, I had been was looking for a, a new area of research, and people would ask me, "Well, why do these Amish?" Uh, do weird things like they have tractors, but they never take them out in the field. They keep them at the barn, but they use horses in the field. And these Amish that don't permit having a driver's license or, or owning a car, they they hire local uh, local neighbors. I mean, it was like uh, Uber. I mean, they've been doing Uber for a century already. Uh, just <laughs> calling, talking, asking a neighbor to take them somewhere. So. I was just curious as a sociologist, and I was reading a book uh, at that time, using it in my classes called The Riddles of, of Human Culture. And that kind of stirred me and got me going. And uh, so the rest is history, so to speak. <laughs> so let's get back to what I touched on in the intro. Um, for those of us, uh, for visitors to Lancaster County, there's always a great deal of confusion about who or what is Amish. I've heard people uh, from Philadelphia, people con continually confuse Mennonites, River Brethren, as we might call them, um, and and the Amish. They confuse them all. So, how are the Amish? Who are yeah. the, this group of 
let's go through the entire associated groups that not all of them, but then what distinguishes say an Amish from other people within the, within Lancaster County or, or, or Eastern Ohio or Northwestern Indiana, Northeastern Indiana. Right. Uh, the big picture word, the big picture word is plain, the plain communities of North America and plain means plain dress dress that's distinctive from the outside surrounding culture. So these people, whether they're Amish or River Brethren or older Mennonites or Hutterites, uh, they are wearing distinctive clothing. So within the Plain communities, the Amish are the horse and buggy driving group, subgroup. Having said that, there's a small group of old order Mennonites who also still drive horse and buggy. But they would be maybe 2% of this larger horse and buggy driving group, um, which would be the the Amish. Mm -hmm. So that is the guideline sociologists use as kind of uh, a boundary because there are beachy Amish Mm -hmm. who drive automobiles. There are Amish (laughs) Mennonites who drive automobiles. And it also is a it's not just a simple demarcation. Um, in terms of dress and horse, but it also digs much deeper, Al, because the automobile fundamentally changes your way of life. Um, The Amish say they prohibit automobiles because it would tear the community apart. Uh Uh, The horse keeps the community tethered close together in a a small village, so to speak. Well, let's start with that. Uh, because it seemed you you have uh, this series of what twenty five essays or short uh, yes, essays 22. in this book twenty two, uh, and you have very pithy one line usually one word sort of headings for each one. It's very nice, um, uh, and the very first one is villages. So this gets to uh, basically the and they kind of go in groups these these twenty two essays, and the first set of of essays are preoccupied I think between the the linkage between um, community and bigness. So let's yes. but let's start with villages. And what, what does yeah. village mean to you and relate? Okay. What can the Amish well, teach us about village? Okay. Well, the first thing is the Amish, there is not an Amish village. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so in a sense, I'm using village as a metaphor uh-huh. and I'm using it as a metaphor for a group that lives in close face-to-face contact and interaction. Villages around the world are small. They uh, exist because of face-to-face verbal interaction. Um, But there is, the Amish don't use that word, but I feel for the reasons I've just suggested that it's a really apt way to capture the face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, no social media, but, you know, storytelling and so on in this uh, community. The other thing that makes the, and what the Amish call theirs is a church slash community, a church community. And church and community are tied tightly together. Mm-hmm. And in each Amish church community, there's about 150 to 160 people, half of which are under the age of 18. Um, and they live interspersed with English neighbors. They call outsiders English. Um, and so that's different than a village in South America or in Africa or in Western uh, 
plains of U.S. or wherever, um, those villages typically are all the same group, not interspersed with outsiders. Can I ask a, uh, something I hadn't thought about until I read your book? Why, I mean, if you go and if you hike and walk in the areas of Germany from which the Amish come, we still, there's a tradition there of still of nucleated villages with farmers living together in a village and farming ta- fields outside the village. One which the Amish, interestingly enough, did not bring over with them to Pennsylvania. So they have always, they've, have they persisted in dispersed populations uh, this entire well, they, time? Well, they, they, they don't have, uh, there is another Anabaptist group called Old Colony Mennonites from Russia, okay? Yeah. And the Old Colony Mennonites do buy up all the property and they control all the ownership in a large area. The Hutterites of North America today do that as well. And by the way, they are a communal group that we mm-hmm. might want to talk about later. But the Amish, uh, part of it is they were under persecution and mm-hmm. so they were on the fly and they were kind of stayed hidden. They were in rural, outlying rural areas, but didn't really cre- own a lot of land together. So they've mm-hmm. always been dispersed. However, in North America, they always settled in proximity to each other. Mm-hmm. So you would have six or seven families settling, not buying up all the land, but within uh, you know easy distance of each other, even though they didn't own all the property. Because if they're in proximity to each other, they're in the, a church group together, a, a church together. They are in horse and buggy, so they have to be of proximity to each other. Correct. Uh, correct. And they and am I right in that they put our churches uh, worship is done in the homes or in is the it- home or the barn on, on the property in a shed in a barn in the summer in in the basement of a house or in the up upstairs of a house. I mean, in the first floor of the house. Um, they have no church buildings. Uh-huh. The Amish church owns no property. Okay, no paid ministry. Think about the cost of this, Al, for upkeep. Uh-huh. You, know, <laughs> you don't have a building. You don't have a staff. I mean, it's like uh, very basic and simple in that sense. And so they're really literally house churches. Uh-huh. So you have like 2,600 house churches, uh, meaning that they rotate from home to home. Uh, throughout the year uh, for their church services. And yet in these little, in these church districts, there are also a centrally located school. And we'll get to that. And that's yes. in, pro- that's in yes, proximity yes. to the, those are sort of geographically located at a cro- crossroads somewhere in the vicinity. Correct. Okay. Um, you write, the singular truth of the Amish argument is this, life is a communal project. That seems to me at the heart of much of this book. Yes, it, it's communal, and, and I'm using communal in the sense of social, mm-hmm. um, not economic. They mm-hmm. are, um, they are um, uh, capitalists, uh, low, lower C capitalists. Um, and so in terms of their economy, they uh, trade and sell and engage in the larger public economic. So they are communal in terms of their social life, their social organization. And the big thing is compared to outside American society, uh, the order of um, sort of order of authority for them is church community, family, and then the individual. Uh And that's completely upside down to the values of modern American life, where it's individual, 
then maybe family um, and maybe church if there's any church or religious affiliation. So they flip that upside down, so to speak, and that is at the core, the core of the difference between Amish life and modern American life. Yeah, for and it's very interesting to me if you um, if we looked at, at literature of the early 20th century, uh, Sinclair Lewis, uh, Theodore Dreiser, uh, the unremitting theme is the the harshness of village or small town life. Because everyone's mm-hmm. looking at you, everyone's mm-hmm. judging you, everyone's assessing you. Uh, what people often forget is, say, the Lower East Side of Manhattan, when my ancestors immigrated, every block was also a village. <laughs> and everyone on a, in a block was also watching you and assessing you. So this, uh, this, this small town life occurs even in big cities at a, in a previous age. Yes. What we find offensive, I think, uh, about the Amish, about this, about village life, is it's anti-suburban. Yes, and it, it is. Everybody knows everything about everyone else. I mean, uh, an Amish guy said that, uh, and it's true that you're together all the time. Uh, you see each other. You see who's in order and who's out of order. Um, and one Amish guy told me. He said, "Hey, Don," he said, "you know." Uh, the Amish grapevine's faster than the internet. <laughs> Every village has a faster grapevine than the internet, and everyone and everyone has a reputation. I grew up in a in a village of nine hundred or thereabouts. Um, I know about people's grandparents, <laughs> and, that's, yes. and you mentioned this. The Amish, you know, that people come with stories, rightly or wrongly. It's just that's the, those are the stories that get passed around in a in a smaller village or a smaller community about people. Yes, yes. Um, let's so let's talk about community. How would you distinguish community from village? I mean, they're related, but you are sort of you're teasing apart the sort of differences uh, between well, the two. Yeah, well, I would say um, community for the Amish is religiously legitimated, uh-huh. and so they're not just in community; they're in community under God, uh-huh. so to speak, and the rules and regulations. Um, are, um, they, they come together as a church, even with technology. Um, if you want to buy a cell phone, um, you know, they would go to the bishop and talk to the bishop or other elders about that kind of a decision. And then at church meetings twice a year, they come together and reaffirm or revise uh, their regulations. And so it's done under the context of the church. And as my good anthropologist friend, Karen Johnson Weiner says, Don, the Amish are always in church uh-huh. because their business practices, their technology, their farming practices, how they furnish their household, all of that is under the umbrella of the church, so to speak. And so that is, I think, distinctive compared to village per se. Uh-huh. Yes, absolutely. Um and we'll get to this. This is so. This community, then, this is sort of a, this is an underlying practical theology that lies beneath this concept of village, and which gives its life to the village. Yes. Yeah. And you say it's the that community is the way of the Amish vanquishing the big eye. Could you could you explain that? Well, uh, the big eye is individualism, and it's about 
looking out for my interests first and protecting my interests. Um, and in Amish life, humility is the virtue, not individual. Mm-hmm. And so you are always humble and you, you step back and you don't put yourself ahead. You don't, it's, I have this very difficult thing with journalists who come and want to do a story. And I say, well, yeah, I think you can interview these folks and I'll help you, but they don't want you to use their name. Well, why not? Why wouldn't you want me to use their name? Well, because that's arrogant. And it's like one Amishman speaking for the whole Amish community. He doesn't, he doesn't know the info. He would never do that. Well, I, my editors won't let me run the story. Well, I said, let me talk to your editors and I'll try to explain. Uh, but it's hard for us to get it because as Americans, we're all focused on me, 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 and uh, uh, our special interests. Whereas in the, in the Amish world, it's the community. It's, it's the church. And you submit yourself to the church at baptism. You really place yourself under the authority of the church as an 18, 19, 20-year-old. And uh, that's utterly um, <laughs> counterintuitive for us because for us, the intuitive thing is to stick up for yourself, make a yeah. name for yourself, and uh, get in the newspapers, get on yeah, out. Know- <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know if I missed the uh, the chapter called authority, but there seems to be, there's a lot of authority in various uh, places in, the, in, the, in these essays. Uh, yes, where does authority come from? I agree. I agree. There is, it's, there's patriarchal authority. Now, um, I think of it as soft patriarchy because women have a voice and women have a role and they, they control a lot of power quietly. Uh, So it's a kind of soft patriarchy, but there is a patriarchal structure in the community (laughs) under, and, and they would say that's under God. That's how in their theology, they would say that is how God ordained gender roles and sex roles in terms of marriage. Mm-hmm. But they they choose, and we should probably, this is a good place to say that, they choose their leaders, they choose the, the, the vehicles, the vessels of authority in our modern American perspective in the maddest possible way. Could you explain how someone yeah, becomes yeah. a bishop? Well, when when you let's say when you become a minister, it uh, there you typically are two ministers in a congregation. If one passes away or uh, is not able to serve, then they would have a um, a gathering of the church community, and anyone could nominate a man to go into the lot, so to speak. It's a it's a biblical idea from the Old Testament, New Testament, where. I mean, it's like a random lottery from the outside point of view. And mm-hmm. you, so you might have end up with six or seven people uh, who you have to get two votes or three votes to get into the, the, the lot. And then um, the minute the, the, there would be a special service and uh, they would uh, give, uh, have six songbooks if there are six people in the lot. Those would be randomly. Um, sorted, brought into the room, but one would have a slip of paper in it. And so the, the five, the six candidates would each pick a book and whoever gets the uh, one with the paper in is ordained right on the spot. So, the, and it is the most powerful, moving, emotive ritual in Amish life because there's this sense of God literally reaching, not literally, but in essence, reaching down from heaven 
to select someone um, to be the next pastor. And they're, they're stuck with that person for the rest of their life. And he's stuck with them. <laughs> so <laughs> you, uh... if, you like, if you don't like who's, who was called, you argue with God because the buck stops with God on this one. <laughs> It, it reminded me of like, there's like a miniature Sistine Chapel ceremony happening over and over again throughout the yeah. Amish community, except without the, yeah. without the rounds of voting. It's just, it's done like that. But there's the same sense of when you read about how the conclaves work sometimes and where someone who didn't really want to be Pope sees the way the votes are going and starts just starts to, uh, is, is overwhelmed. Yes. And likewise, these men, they're all men is is all of a sudden resignation uh overwhelmed yes. by his yes. he has to resign to the choice and and his family his wife is overwhelmed with this responsibility <laughs> and yeah. so they're now shepherds of this flock and it's enormous responsibility and it's and it done through a lottery as yeah. as as people on the outside would see it as people on the outside would say, it's a lottery. In their view, it would be a sacred service. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about some other interrelated concepts. Oh, no, I'm going to talk about smallness, which is, I think, related to all this. And this is something the late Gene Logsdon, who is a agrarian writer, has some wonderful essays on what he calls Amish economics and about the... Um, the ways in which the Amish are able to make a profit as farmers, uh, unlike their neighbors, um, because they avoid bigness, um, yes. and and uh, and so there's this smallness. Um, long before E. F. Schumacher wrote "Small's Beautiful," and long after people have sort of forgotten Schumacher's precepts, the Amish have continued being really anti-bigness. So could yes. you explain their the the their sort of their philosophy of smallness? Well, um, they're they're uh, everything is small except their family size. Yeah. <laughs> small schools, um, uh, small gatherings, small farms, uh, small businesses. If a business gets too big, uh, the church leaders may come and talk to uh, the entrepreneur, and in some cases, entrepreneurs are excommunicated. Because they won't listen to the church. The worry is small, big. How does how do they judge how big it is? Employees, it marries, uh, it's, cash flow. It's it's, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, it depends on the it depends on the twenty six one of the which it, twenty it, of the communities you're in. I it's guess. it's perception and it's judgment and um and 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 there's it just varies uh, mm -hmm. a great deal, but um, their worry is that. Bigness will lead to abuse and to power. And so the owner of a really big business, remember, this is uh, in a church context now of maybe just 25 or, or 30 families. This really wealthy owner may have more power than the bishop. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it screws up the, um, the uh, equality within the community. And uh, they, they see it as very threatening. And, and Al, think about this. The Amish have not accepted bureaucracy in the course of the 20th century. To me, it is so striking. Or before. <laughs> or before. But you think about the size of businesses and industries, you know, from the late 19th century up through the 20th century. They have not accepted that in any way. They, they simply have stayed out of it. And so that shows how resilient and stubborn 
their commitment to smallness is because, you know, church districts are small. Everything is small in order to have this sense of equality. When you go to the cemetery, all the uh, tombstones are identical. You don't see any signs of wealth or any signs of someone having a big stone to call attention to themselves after they're dead. It would, it just is unthinkable. So in many ways, a lot of their um, precepts are to encourage smallness. So, you know, I've done the math. I've thought about this a lot. And if you are just one man and uh, two horses, you can handle 40 acres and 40 acres and a mule is not invented. There's a, there's a limit to what one man and a mule or two horses can do. Um, If I get four horses and a hired man or like three or four kids, I can maybe take on 80, but beyond 80 um, there's a limit and there's no way with horses um, and even lots of hired men that a Amish uh, farmer would take on a section a thousand, two thousand acres, which is now common in say southwestern Minnesota or yes. some or in Canada, you're going to have at least a, a section or half section. Uh, you yes. can't make money in industrial agriculture without a half section or a section. Um, but by limiting themselves to forty or eighty acres, by the technology they're using, they actually sort of increase the possibilities for themselves to make a profit in a very counterintuitive way. Right. Yes. Um, the, the, and one the other thing they're concerned about is keeping the family together right. so that the family can work the ground together. Um, and um, that would be another issue with a, a big business. If, if, mm-hmm. if a big, if a business had 30 or 40 employees and they, you know, were coming from other, even if they were all Amish, but that's an issue. It's like, well, this is no longer a family business. This is a big corporation now. Uh, I mean, not really, but uh, from Amish perspectives and, and Amish eyes. Yeah. Well, that's that's a beautiful segue. You're a professional. Um, we can now move to children and parenting. So as you describe it, the Amish are the original and still the best at free-range parenting. Um, and you describe sort of the stuff that you'd find in a, in a I guess, farm kids, a sort of independence and a responsibility. Um should this surprise us? I mean, is, is this, do, do people not expect that when they, they think, what do they think Amish children are going to be like? Well, you know, I grew up on a farm, so it doesn't surprise me too much, except right. these are fairly sizable families, like six or eight kids in, in many families. And um, I have uh, happened to have an Amish neighbor here has a small uh vegetable and and farm and uh, does produce and they have like four or five kids i was there the other day getting some sweet corn and i saw down in the field um there were four kids and um the the oldest one is probably eight years old he's a boy and then there's a girl that's maybe six and another daughter that's um uh, i don't know three and then a little one that's he can he can walk, but just about. Let's say he's two years old. So they were loading a wagon, a, a small wagon down there with corn, and uh, the eight year old starts pulling it, and he pulls it up the hill. They put the little two year old in the wagon with the corn, and the two girls are pushing from behind, and they're they're not there. I mean, there's no parents within eyesight or even hearing sight. 
Uh-huh. You know, what if somebody trips, there's a bumblebee, there's a frog jumps. Or Terrible whatever. things could happen. They, they, they're on their own to figure it out. And yeah. they are entrepreneurial, even the little kids like that. I mean, and so um, well, it teaches gets, them to work. This gets it to what used to be um, one of the hotly debated topics in sort of early modern history. Um, do have Amish, do Amish see their children as ec- simply as or primarily as economic units, um, were those children working or were they playing? Or what, does their play look like work and does their work look like play is, the, I think, the more subtle question probably. Yeah, I think their work <laughs> uh, feels somewhat like play to them, I, I think. Uh, they, I would say they see themselves as being an essential part of the family, that mm-hmm. this we, we have this produce shop and we do this because it's how we live and how we get our earnings. Dad doesn't go off to a factory. Uh, Mom doesn't go off somewhere and work. But we're all in this together, and we're helping, and we're going to share the benefits from it. So I think it gives them a sense of value. And I would say mm-hmm. the Amish don't really – they. I mean, we're, we're – philosophers, uh, people like you and me, you know, and think about the economic value and where this fits. That is all true, but they wouldn't uh, conceptualize it like that. These are people that have gone to eighth grade, have not studied philosophy or economics or even science. And so for them, it's keeping the family together. It's working together as a family. And for the kids, it's it's an honorable thing. They feel like they, I mean, kids today that um, in a, and I don't mean to be negative or make judgments, but, you know, they're living in a household and they're, they're hanging around watching television. They're not really doing anything to contribute to the economic welfare of the household because the parents are doing it all. And they the kids have sort of a free ride for a while. Mm. So it's it's just completely upside down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I remember as a child, you know, you, naturally one of the first things a child wants to do is do what their parents do, do what the people you love do. Um, it's hard to do that when you can't see where they work yes. or how they work or, or what they work on. Yes. Um, you know, you, I, I, for a while thought I could shave with my dad. That was like yeah. one of his chief jobs <laughs> was shaving, you know. Uh, yeah. But it's the, the the participation is the joy, and I'm sure that's the case for those kids pushing the corn up from the field. Also, and, you know the 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 boy that's leading it, he's he's in charge and he's feeling good. It's, it's kind of like they mm-hmm. let my parents let me do it, you know, all by myself. So there's mm-hmm. a there's a kind of honor and dignity to it. Yeah. Um, so parenting then is much more. Um, as your description of it, it's much more guiding than directive for the Amish. You just kind of, well, the, um, I, I, I don't know. The, the, the parenting is you want to do whatever you need to do to help a child become independent early. And um, you want to guide them, but also direct them. And they will spank children. Like if, 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 if a child's disobedient or talks back or argues, I mean, they make it clear that the parents have the authority, but they don't often have to display that. It's just kind of like built into the system <laughs> that you know mm-hmm. you, you uh, need to follow what your parents do. And, and, but the parents who get worried, if the child is 
becoming uh, individualistic and talking back and arguing or not cooperating, uh, then the parents worry, well, this is going to not be a good fit as this child gets older in church. I mean, it's, it's, so they're, they're training them in the spirit of being a member of a community where the church is the most important thing, family's next important, and you're least important in that three step, those three different steps. So, I mean, that's a, that's a great question that follows up from them very nicely. What do they do with a, sort of a 14-year-old who just won't, you know, can't stop from, uh, who believes that offense is the best form of defense, um, as, uh, as many they, 14-year-olds they, do? Yeah, they would be very, um, they would be very sad. They wouldn't know what to do. Uh, and they would, it's too late to correct things then. I mean, the things need mm-hmm. to be corrected when the child is two or three. If you okay. do parenting right at that stage, then they're going to be fine until they're 16. When they're 16, then uh, they get into room springer, and, and that means they go out Saturday night with their friends. Uh, it's kind of when they begin dating and courtship. They're not baptized yet, and so they're tip- strictly not under the rules of the church. But at that point, they, they join a gang, uh, another Amish group. <laughs> they actually call them gangs, but not in the sense that we do. But it might be 150 kids that are between the ages of uh, 16 and 22 or 23, uh, whenever, you know, be, uh, typically once they're married, then they're out of room spring. I mean, it's like the, the open okay. space between 16 years old and uh, married. So I, that's when I noticed kids- you you have no essay on Rumspringa. Rumspringa is of deep fascination to people I, I've noticed. Yeah. Um, I so, and, and the, way you're, the way that you're describing is very different than I think than sort of the conceptions, the idea that, you know, that for like maybe two years, they all move into Philadelphia yeah, and, and do drugs and then, then they all decide to become Amish again or something like that. That is all myth. Um, yeah. I would say 99% stay at home and live at home during Rumspringa. Are there a couple... Um, Outliers like one percent, sure they'll go to Chicago or they'll go wherever, and eventually many of them come back. But um, yeah, I don't know why I did. I think I have a paragraph in there on choice or something. Um, yeah, you do. That touches on Room Spring or just. But, um, I see these essays are based on what I learned from the Amish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, not not so what I'm we impose not, on them. I'm not trying to do an analytical, you know, across the board the good and the bad and everything. Um, and maybe I should have, I don't know. <laughs> That's all right. No, 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 it's okay. But it, I think it, it, it um, I think it's good to talk about what they think is important and relativize what we think is important. Yeah. Um, so education um, is a very different, I, I, I went to a one room school, uh, but mm-hmm. for like a year, did you go to one room school? I mean, we, I, I must no. be one of the last, no, um, but very briefly. And um, it was wonderful. And but Amish schools are even more uh, one room schools sound even better. Could you describe how they they educate and what makes it different? So, um, the 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 across North America, the bulk, and I would say I'm make, guessing at numbers here, estimating ninety five percent of them would go to a one or two room Amish run and operated school. Operated mean the trustees are in charge of selecting the teacher. Uh, building the school, maintaining the school, and so on. There would be maybe 5%, some in Ohio, that actually go to a public school, but it's a thick, thick Amish community. 
And so 90% of the kids are Amish. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the public school actually caters and runs it sort of like an Amish school. Um, so they would, um, a teacher typically is responsible for all eight grades. She often, it, typically they are women. Uh, she typically would have a, an assistant or a helper and uh, would uh, teach them often in groups like first and second graders together, third and fourth together. And so they're all hearing each other. There's like a humming, a gentle, organized, it sounds like a beehive because the other groups are talking together uh, and listening in what she's, the, the, the fourth and fifth graders are listening to what, or let's say fifth and sixth graders are listening to what the teacher is saying to third and fourth. And so they get the lesson three times <laughs> over, over a couple of years. But it's basics, uh, spelling, uh, arithmetic, um, uh, some history, uh, no science, um, some German, but the, the English is taught in school and some of the kids don't know any English until they come to school. Um, and, what, and, and no technology, Al, no technology there, a stove or maybe a, a copier uh, running off of a battery. And, oh. and so they, get, they leave the school at eighth grade, they're 14, they go into an entrepreneurship, uh, excuse me, a, 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 an apprenticeship working for other um, Amish people uh, uh -huh. on a farm, in a shop, in a factory, uh, whatever. And um, what's amazing to me is that seven or eight years later, these people that have come through eighth grade are operating and owning businesses and eventually sizable businesses. And they've never gone to high school. They don't have um, a master's degree from anywhere in business or an MBA, not one. Mm -hmm. But they are smart and well-educated in their own way, even though they never mm -hmm. went to, uh, never graduated from high school. So I'm so sort of rambling here. No, that's all right. So apprenticeships are the next step after they leave eighth grade, they're Correct. 14. They they're, who do they apprentice with? It depends. It's up to them and their parents. And it's not an official system. It just, uh -huh. it is an apprenticeship, but they don't refer to it. There's not an office of Amish apprenticeship where you go and find <laughs> who you want to apprentice. Are there, do they sign contracts uh, a la the 18th no, century? No. Or, no. no. Uh, they, so uh, let's say uh, an Amish boy is um, uh, working on a dairy farm. His parents have uh -huh. a dairy farm. He may work for a neighbor across the street in a carpentry shop. So he's uh -huh. sort of checking out carpentry and he decides he really doesn't like it. So there's another neighbor that does plumbing down the road two miles and he works for him and he really gets into plumbing. Uh, uh -huh. And so, you know, eventually he uh, does that as his life's work because he, he enjoys it. Uh -huh. uh, a woman, a uh, young woman that grows up on the farm may go in uh, two or three miles away and work for an aunt who has a greenhouse uh -huh. because a young woman is interested in greenhouses and raising flowers. Another one may go to a fabric shop and, and work for um, a, 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 an Amish friend there who's not even part of the family. So uh -huh. it's a chance for them in, uh, let's say, basically from uh, 14 to 18 to figure out what kind of occupational niche they would like to pursue. 
What would they? Uh, how, what do you, uh, people who want to be teachers? What do they? What do they do? Uh, they're they're the smartest. <laughs> they are. They really are. These are very smart women. Uh, they're they, they they the school board looks around and they look for someone who um, endorses Amish values. They don't give them a test, but are they would not want to go. To, they would not select someone who they feel sort of on the margins of Amish society. Mm-hmm. And they would select someone who did well in school and who is interested in teaching and maybe was a teacher's helper for a year or so. And uh, they're often very bright. And what's interesting is they often teach just for three or four years, then they get married. Right. right. But you have all of these women now, <laughs> as they become adults, who understand uh, maybe math better than their husband does, <laughs> mm-hmm. or understand literature or some history better, and uh, it really is a um, way to educate beyond the eighth grade because they're now teaching it. But they don't; the, these women do not have a high school certificate. I mean, they don't go themselves beyond eighth grade. There are teachers' workshops where they go mm-hmm. uh, once a year and get. Um, updated on some practices and suggestions, um, but they are, they are not formally educated at the high school level, is what that's, I'm trying to say. That's very interesting. I know a very experienced uh, principal, and in fact, superintendent, um, who believed that people should only be in the classroom for four years before going, before leaving from a different classroom or different grade, yeah. doing something different to break that uh, you know, otherwise it's, you're there too long. Let <laughs> um, me so, just say one other word historically about yeah. uh, Amish schools. Oh, you yes, know, please. Tourists, tourists might come out and say, wow, these Amish schools are really unique. This is really, this is really interesting. How did they come up with this idea? Well, hello, this is how all Americans uh, in the 20, first half of the 20th century, mostly mm-hmm. in rural areas, were educated. And the Amish have simply historically, in this case, continued doing what uh, other uh, American uh, rural publics were doing. And so there's nothing really unique about Amish schools. (laughs) There's not much Amish about them. (laughs) No, Uh, it's very interesting to see that. And and not to be too self-referential here, but where I grew up, we had a system of, uh, in a very small township in New Jersey, we had three one-room schools. And then briefly, um, you had like a high school, uh, which was one building with four rooms. Uh, uh, but all that went away after the Second World War with uh, regional consolidations. Um, and, and, so, and then there were more regional consolidations and more regional consolidations. So you go from, say, a high school of 80 to one of 1,200. Uh, and uh, which is better? Hmm. Um, you know, and and that that consolidation, the consolidation that was going on in the late 40s and early 50s is exactly what the Amish opposed. And here in Lancaster County in eastern Pennsylvania, there were hundreds of parents that were arrested for refusing to let their children go to high school. Okay, and and it was it was a big deal. They went to prison, some of these parents. So it, it because it would be an example of modernization where this uh, nice local entity is now being overseen by a, a lar- transformed by a large group uh, operation with the public high schools, teachers coming from other states and other areas, 
a larger system, riding on a school bus and on and on, health education, sex education, sports, all the kinds of things that the Amish feared would uproot their church and take away their young people from the church's control. But it was exactly their their um, adherence to smallness was, yeah. pl- you know, it was, as you call it, and their anti-bigness. <laughs> the last thing they're going to be in favor of is a regional high school, a exactly. regional consolidated school. Um, let's talk about the question. I mean, I, I, I would bet tw- any amount of money that the nine out of 10 times, the first question people ask you about the Amish is about technology. Um, that, that's, that's, that's true. Um, and let me just say, if I, if you don't mind me making a, a historical footnote here, <laughs> go right ahead. This is historically um, thinking. 1890, the Amish had no differences in technology than their local rural English neighbors. Okay. There were no differences. Mm-hmm. Everybody's riding horse and buggy. Okay. Everybody's using the same kind of equipment. The Amish are buying new equipment, new manure spreaders, new wagons uh, from the farm dealers, just like their English neighbors. And there's no shift. There's no distinctiveness about Amish technology until about 1910 with the telephone. Uh And then in the course of the 20th century, you have the Amish resisting uh, technology after the telephone telephone. it's the electricity, then the car, um, and the tractor eventually. And, and so you have uh, gradually over the 20th century, new I- different items that they begin to resist. Uh-huh. But I just find it fascinating that there's nothing Amish about technology until early 20th century. Now, I've often thought that. I'm glad to have you in, point uh, say that because that seems to me what you see. I mean, we'll get to this. Well, the, the sort of the essential thing about technology, and I've you say it, and I've read other people say it, is the connections. It's the connections from the outside to the inside. So can you, you see, explain that because that seems to, that determines everything. That that is what the, why the telephone was a danger. Because the telephone was letting outsiders come into your home, and you had party lines, and the outsiders could listen in. <laughs> and, and so that's what uh, shut down the telephone. But the fascinating thing also about the telephone is the instrument itself kept evolving, evolving over time. So when I was doing field work in the mid uh, late uh, 1980s. I said to a grandmother, tell me about the history of the telephone. And she, so she went back and recited some. And I said, well, what, uh, what, what's the church's feeling about the telephone now? This is uh, late 1980s. She said, well, frankly, Don, it's still on probation. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, I would say it's still on probation now because one of the most vexing things is a cell phone. Yeah. Because here you have a community, uh, business people especially, really find a smartphone uh, helpful. Uh-huh. And yet this is a, a community based on separation from the world. That's one of their key religious principles, that we are separate from the world. Well, you have a smartphone in your hand, and Al, you know as well as I do that the world is in your hand. Uh-huh. And so you can imagine the heated disputes and debates now about the appropriateness of a smartphone. 
And so, that has, that's still on probation. Yeah. Like 20 years ago, you could see uh, throughout Lancaster County, you could see these little huts across the street from a house yes. uh, uh, with a thriving business, say. And oftentimes those were fax huts. <laughs> um, uh, they would go, uh, you would go across the street to send a fax machine yes. a me- message uh, to do your, to, to, to do business of some kind. And but that maybe- was the whole point of connection. But many of those were also uh, telephone booths. Telephone booths, yeah. And, and at first they started to say, well, we'll have them just to make outgoing calls. So we'll put mm-hmm. them out, you know, far away from the house so you're not tempted to go out and, and receive a call. We just want to give message, call the vet or call the doctor. We have an emergency. But it, gradually these come closer and closer to the house. And in fact, now a few of them are actually in houses, in basements or whatever. Uh, and the same thing happened with the shops. And now it's not an issue about, and this at Lancaster is a progressive settlement. So uh-huh. uh, there would still be other congr- communities in North America that would still keep them out of the house. But anyway, um, I'm sorry. One, one, no, one thing that always shocks visitors is that the Amish use electricity um, and that they have these machine shops. Uh, but are powered by diesel generators. Um, but this is also a part of not being connected. I, I, I'm curious, Lo- Gene Logston 20 years ago said the Amish would be the earliest adopters of solar in America. Have, have they, uh, as solar been? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, I, I would say they had stopped, they had started, I'm, I'm thinking now, um, this would be in the early 1980s in yeah. a minor level with electric fences to keep in cattle. Sure. You could get a, a small solar uh, collector, you know, to mm-hmm. run electric. But now they're yep. using solar a lot as a workaround. And mm-hmm. um, the um, the issue with the, the electricity, this is 1920, let's say, when it's starting to come out in the rural areas, was the fear that it would connect them to the world, not, not mm-hmm. in terms of talking, but in terms of, you know, all the um, kitchen appliances that come along with it. All the up, upscale things in a dairy barn would come along with it. And so they just like pulled through the plug on it, so to speak, and said, we just don't need it. We're doing fine without electricity. However, they always used batteries. Going back to 1890, early 20th century, they used batteries for uh, flashlights and for other things, and eventually for uh, buggies, for lights on buggies. And now they're using LED lights. So they had this long tradition of forbidding um, off uh, off the grid public electricity, but using batteries. And that plays into how they're functioning today because battery power uh, is another alternative workaround. I'm sort of getting off track here, but they, they are really... Uh, good at doing workarounds. <laughs> well, this is what it was leads into is what you call hacking. You have a chapter called hacking, which is hilarious for some people. But what I love about it, it's like cultural hacking. Yes, they've got they've got the Peter Berger's plausibility structure, yes. and they're going to hack at stuff so that it fits into their plausibility structure. Yes, um, yes. if it can fit, then they'll hack at it and put it in. If it, there's some things that just won't. Um, yes. but otherwise they'll try to do these workarounds. They'll try to they'll try to hack at it. But they, they don't, uh, good hackers, good Amish hackers don't um, uh, violate the church rules. Right. I, I give an example. That's the cultural, the that's the cultural hacking. That's the, the exactly. trying, it has to fit within the sort of to mix the, the metaphor, the guardrails of the culture. Yeah. That, yes, it fit within the moral yeah. order. Yes. 
Um, let me say a word about cars. Um, yeah, and sure. Everyone wants to know about cars. Be, because <laughs> one issue here is what's continuity and what is change. And you can't pull those apart with the car issue because on the one hand, these people out, this is what, 2021, 360,000 of them in 31 different states still driving horse and buggy. Did you hear that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're talking about a long continuum here. Uh, <laughs> however, but they do the workarounds. So uh, they will hire drivers. Uh, a business owner might hire drivers to take them somewhere. So uh, a family might hire a driver to take them to a funeral uh, 200 miles away, uh, and they'll have a van take them. And, and so they make a distinction in the technology between um, ownership and access, mm-hmm. the distinction between ownership and access. And so what's going on here is you have the continuity of the horse and buggy travel, but at the same time, you have all this change in terms of access to transportation, even though you don't own it. So it's an mm-hmm. interesting mixture of continuity on the one hand, but also rapid change on the other hand. So yes. I just find them fascinating. <laughs> well, let's go a little deeper uh, beyond that. We've this is sort of we've this is we've we just finished with sort of the questions that or the, the, the obsession with cars and buggies that uh, most English have when they visit Lancaster County for the first time, or or Holmes County, Ohio, or so on. Um, which is I think the largest Amish community in, in the world is in, is actually in Ohio. Um, well, that's debatable. Uh, debatable, we, I'm we, sure. <laughs> the way we count the numbers, Lancaster's a little bit bigger, but that's, okay. All right. Yeah. That, that's gotcha. Or rivalry. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, there's an article in GQ of all places about the fading away of various utopian communities in California in this generation uh, as the basically people die out. And yet uh, the Amish grow and they grow and they grow. Um, there was a, what was it? The fire next time? What was there? There's a book in the early nineties that was just, uh, pro- prophesying the destruction of the Lancaster community of Amish. And that, yes. that sure did not happen. Um, so every time there's been a prophecy of the, just the death of the Amish community, they've, they just blown right by it. Um, and it seems to me that, um, a lot of those community utopian communities in, in California were created as an end to themselves. Yes. Um, and what makes the Amish survive is our deeper things. And that's can be described as spirituality. So could we talk about, I'd like to talk about spirituality, but particularly about um, forgiveness, non-resistance and death um, just in, in rapid yes. succession. So could you, what makes the Amish different from the other plain people around them? Uh, what unites them about what makes them different? On spirituality? Yes. Well, one would be uh, the Amish have a, a, a strong um, uh, theology that of humility when it comes to talking about salvation. Mm-hmm. Okay? Like evangelicals, uh, mainstream evangelicals, uh, talk about salvation in personal terms, like mm-hmm. personal Bible study, personal evangelism, personal this, personal that. It's all about the individual. And I guess that would be the case with certain Mennonites and sort of the so-called Susquehanna brethren of that surround the... Correct, the, correct. Yeah. yes. They would also. 
The Amish, um, when they talk about salvation, they uh, they they would say it's arrogant to say mm-hmm. that I'm saved. They say, well, how could you know? This is God's business to determine uh, who gets through the pearly gates and who doesn't. And it's just arrogant to say, I know I'm saved. I'm sure I'm saved. I was saved at such and such a time or place or whatever. So the Amish say we have a living hope. And a living hope means that we have confidence that God will be a just and merciful judge. And we are just satisfied and find comfort in leaving those decisions in God's hands. And we aren't, we don't like this sense of arrogance of saying that we think we are little miniature gods. And so that really stirs up sometimes evangelical discussions with them because they just bring this profound sense of humility to the ultimate question, so to speak, of, of salvation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, does, I'm sorry. How does this, so let's, how does this relate to forgiveness? You've been involved, you were involved with the, well, several incidents in sort of uh, the Amish in the last 20 years uh, uh, where they displayed their, um, well, from the exterior view, a foolish forgiveness for evil yep. that was done against them. Uh, and yet this is, and yet, of course, as you make quite clear in the essay on forgiveness, um, these things, forgiveness was offered without even thinking. It was offered as reflexively. Uh, and understand the difference between forgiveness and accountability as well. Yeah. Well, um, let, let me say as a sociologist um, that one of the reasons the Amish emphasize forgiveness um, is because to live in the village, so to speak, in the community, it takes a lot of forgiveness yeah. to get along, <laughs> to live with each other. So that is, would be the sociological perspective that I would bring. Now, they would not say that. No, but it's, it, it gets, takes us back nicely to the first where we first started off. I mean, you grow up in a village or a small farm community. You always know that person who is capable, who is so toxic, they can drive apart churches you know, fire departments, rotary clubs, Ruritans, the Grange, you know, they can divide them all into two parts. Um, and it just takes a lot of forgiveness to get along. And so yeah. twice a year, they have a meeting before Holy Communion where uh, if, if if they basically can't find harmony in the church, they will delay Holy Communion. Now, have you ever heard of a Catholic church or an Episcopal church or a Baptist church delaying Communion? Yeah. I doubt it. But the Amish will do it even several months or a year. I mean, until they can get harmony. When I asked them specifically, why did you forgive so quickly? Uh, one one bishop said, well, we didn't have any meeting. We didn't have to call a meeting. It was just a decided issue. I said, decided? What do you mean decided? Well, it's just something we do. And we do it because of the Lord's Prayer. When he said, Don, he said, if you look at the Lord's Prayer, it says, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others. So he said, it's in the Lord's Prayer. And he said, at the end of that, it's actually reinforced twice. It's underscored twice. And it's the only idea, he said to me, that that is Jesus reinforced twice in the Lord's Prayer. So to them, it's a religious motivation. And um, they would say it's a religious duty to do this. However, um, in the case of nickel mines, where there was a gunman, uh, a gunman, a neighbor that 
uh, gunned down uh, 10 young girls and killed five before he took his own life. Um, he, um, I, I said to um, this Amish leader, Bishop, I said, well, what, what if Charlie had lived? What would he have done? He said, well, he said he should go to prison. He should be accountable for what he did. He said, forgiveness doesn't mean that people can get away with doing anything they want to. He said, forgiveness means we're just not going to hold it against him. We're not going to have greed and, excuse me, we're, we're not going to have um, revenge and try to retaliate and stuff like that. We, we, don't, we, don't, we don't do that, but he should um, go to prison. And he said, we would go and visit him. Uh, if he was in prison. So that's you get that's sort of the best way I can summarize our view of forgiveness. Sure. So non this out of that comes non-resistance too because if they're not non-retaliation is non-resistance. Yes. And this well, is this is probably the oldest idea in their community dating back to their genesis under persecution from other, other Protestants other the new Protestants yeah. movements. Yeah, and they they again would take non-resistance back to the words of Jesus to love your enemy. And I in the book I talk about the interesting experience I had with the Amish beard cutters. By the way, mm-hmm. I, I sometimes tell the um, tell audiences, you know, I have a I wrote a book on the good Amish, the nickel mine, God's grace at nickel mines, and I wrote a, um, <laughs> a book on the bad Amish, renegade yeah. Amish, the beard cutters. And what was interesting to me is that this is in Ohio in 2011, 2012. These renegade Amish were going around cutting off the beards and dragging people out of bed late at night. And a bishop whose beard was cut off and uh, was greatly humiliated, he was asked to come to the federal trial. They were charged with federal hate crimes, and I was an expert witness. And I went to visit him before I went to, to serve on, on the witness stand. And uh, he's, I said, are you going to come and testify? No, he said, I can't go. I said, well, why not? He said, well, I, this would be like, he said, it's like pressing charges. He said, I can't do that. That would be non-resistant to go and press charges. And I, he said, look at me. He said, I just got a haircut. Look <laughs> at Jesus. He went to the cross. He was non-resistant. He didn't fight back. He didn't engage in revenge. He said, that's what I've been telling my people in the church all these years so he said i can't go and and uh testify against this guy eventually he did because other member leaders told him that if he doesn't the bishop that was doing all the beard cutting leading it with his 16 co-conspirators uh would keep on doing it and so they said just go and tell the truth tell the Mm -hmm. truth and so eventually he did. But I just thought it was powerful how this notion that he just got a haircut and look what Jesus went through. So that gets to their sort of fundamental understanding of non-resistance. Let's let's end at the at the end uh, with with death. Uh, the um, you know, it's, it's very sociological or anthropological. This is the, the deepest customs we have are about death. Um, how do the Amish treat death differently? Well, um, the, the key thing that I'm sort of doing in that chapter is really focusing on the power of tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, these are traditions that have lasted a long time. And 
the tradition provides recipes for what you do, behavioral recipes for what you do at every stage of the dying and death. And one of the things that I thought about is Amish children, by the time they're nine or 10, have seen and witnessed many deaths. They've been to a lot of funerals. Um, my grandchildren, who are 14 and 16, have seen very few uh, funerals. Um, and so Amish children are comfortable with death, so to speak. They know the practice. Uh, the body is typically embalmed. Um, it's brought back to the home. Uh, there's like a, a, a two-day wait there where family come and friends come and often just sit in a circle um, and in quiet uh, or very, very low tones. It's not, um, it's just you sit, it's a sense of presence. You're with the family. Other members of the community take over your chores, whether you have a business or you have a farm or whatever, and, and really take charge of things so that the grieving, the, the, those that are grieving can grieve. And, uh, so they're and sitting it, Shiva. I mean, this is, this is, are they, are they pulling this out of the, the old Testament or what, where, where do uh, they get these? I don't see any of these being legitimated by biblical references. Okay. I think these are practices. I, I don't know to what extent they even go back to Europe. I, I don't, I don't know. Uh -huh. um, because I've never seen a rationale for them written down or any references to, well, the Bible says you should do this or that, hmm. uh, like you would with the ordination and the lot, which, you know. Um, but the other thing that's interesting, Al, is for a year afterwards, the, the family that's grieving, let's, let's say a, a couple lost a son who was 15 or 16 and drowned in a swimming accident, you know, on Sunday afternoons, people will come. They'll just sit quietly and they'll talk. And it continues for a year. Huh. And women um, will wear dark black dresses when they are in public. And so what's interesting about that is it allows you to talk to them. They are in that garb for a year if, if a son or a close family member passed away. And, and they're saying... I'm still grieving. And so you can talk to them about it. It's kind of like, it's okay to say, um, I'm sure you think a lot about your son. It like opens up the, mm -hmm. the door to talk where mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a precious habit. Now the men don't, um, there's no particular garb for the men and I'm not quite sure why the women carry the burden of it. Can't mm -hmm. say that. I don't know. Mm -hmm. you so let's let me ask uh, let me end with this uh, sort of question anecdote. Um, I know of an uh, uh, old friend of mine um, I haven't seen for years though he whose parents uh, grew up speaking uh, some kind of German dialect. Uh, he grew up within eyesight, I think, of the northeast extension of the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Right. Um, and, uh, they spoke this dialect well enough that when they finally visited Germany for the first time, sometime in the 1980s, they were able to speak in Bavarian dialect to Bavarians. Yes. Um, they probably had emigrated sometime in like the 1710s or 1720s, but that, that language had, that dialect had been preserved 
that entire time in southeastern Pennsylvania amongst their community. And he spoke nothing of it, not zero. Um, I always thought, as I heard that story, that man, um, he was about 10 years older than me. So it, he had grown up in probably was a, a small kid in the 60s. I thought, my God, that says something about cultural change in southeastern Pennsylvania. Well, he, he was speaking Pennsylvania Dutch. Sure. And the roots of Pennsylvania Dutch go back to the Platinate in were north of Switzerland uh, on both sides of the Platinate. It's some somewhat of a uh, Alsatian dialect there, mm-hmm. but also on on the today the German side um, in in the in the Platinate area there on both sides. So, um, and and as it came to the United States, uh, people here continued speaking, particularly. Yeah. Uh, uh, but not just Amish and Mennonites, but uh, German Lutherans were speaking it. And what's interesting at at turn of the 20th century, probably uh, 60 or 70 percent of the speakers then were um, so-called non-plain speakers, Lutherans or whatever. And the plain speakers were much smaller. Now it's flipped upside down to it's about 95 percent of the people that speak it in North America uh, would be plain people, Amish and Mennonites. Mm -hmm. And, um, I have a a friend, Mark Loudon at university of Wisconsin, who recently wrote a book on Pennsylvania, uh, Dutch, the story of an, uh, an American language. He argues (laughs) it has become a language, uh, here. And so that's what your friend was experiencing when he went back there. Yeah, well, his parents, not him. <laughs> I'm sorry, his parents. Okay, because what, that's okay. what 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 I hear that story. I think of the enormous changes that occurred amongst the plain people of southeast of, of Pennsylvania. Um, yes. You know, I mean, it's pretty clear looking at the data that Germans, like my um, ancestors, stopped speaking German in Iowa with the First World War. Okay. Because of because of party lines on phones, yes. Their, yes. their English neighbors yes. overheard them and informed <laughs> on them. As a matter of fact, so the Amish yes. had had a point about that. Um, but so, I mean, what what when I hear stories like that, I hear of massive of, of change. And as a historian, I'm okay with that. We're all about change over time. Unlike you sociologists who are trying to find eternal principles that are true forever about human society, <laughs> and that's just crazy. But what I'm worried about, what I was worried until I read your book, was is that the Amish are ahistorical; they don't change. But what yeah. I actually see is now is that the Amish are very Burkean. <laughs> they have very minimal but important alt changes over time to deal with the reality around them. Is that is that is that right? No, I agree. I agree. I I would say some things in your some. Some things endure, like the objection to bureaucracy and bigness. Okay, those those are consistent. But then a lot of things, um, even like the horse and buggy, they're driving horses. But there's a lot of changes, small changes to the buggy that you yeah. wouldn't recognize or know. They're made out of fiberglass, not wood. Uh, yeah. Some have alternators on, you know, to generate electricity for the battery. It's so a matter of a decade before there's a graphite fiber repair shop in, in amongst yeah. Amish communities to get a really good horse and bike. Yeah. I mean, no, they'll do it. They'll do it. And it'll be, they'll make a lot of money doing it. But yeah. So yeah. anyway, they, they, I just find them so fascinating because the way in which they mix historical continuity with fascinating change. 
Well, my guest today has been Donald Craybill. He is the author most recently of What the Amish Teach Us, Plain Living in a Busy World, or as John Cleese might put it, What the Amish Can Do for Us. Uh, Don Craybill, thank you so much for being a part of Historically Thinking. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook. 